0: This is a Rooster Teeth production. May 25th, 1979. American Airlines Flight 191, a McDonnell Douglas DC-10 with 271 people on board, is taking off from Chicago's O'Hare Airport for a flight to Los Angeles' LAX Airport. Immediately after takeoff, the crew experiences a failure in their number one engine. The crew goes through their checklists and attempts to climb in order to gain altitude. The DC-10 begins rolling to the left and crashes back into the ground, hitting a hangar on the airport property and killing all on board as well as two people on the ground. The entire flight lasted less than 50 seconds. What caused this engine to fail? Why did the plane crash when it should have been flyable with two other working engines? Find out in this episode of Black Box Down. Hello everyone, welcome to Black Box Down. It's Chris and Gus. Hello, Chris. Hello, Gus. We're back. Uh, We had a little bit of a break, but we're back with uh, new regular episodes, not bonus content, not supplementary content, but an actual (laughs) regular episode our bread and butter, if you will. Yum. Before we get started, I I, I should tell everyone, follow us on social media at BlackBoxDownPod, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We post supplementary images, and specifically, we're going to have a very well-known image of this flight of American 191. So you can see exactly what happened when the plane was in the air. It's a a picture that someone on the ground took of this plane before it crashed. It's terrifying to look at. So before we get into this specific incident, into American Airlines Flight 191, I have to cover something here. Okay. There are some people who think that the flight number 191 is cursed. And in fact, a lot of airlines don't use the flight number 191. It's for some reason, through pure coincidence... That There have been several incidents with this flight number. And in fact, we've done a Flight 191 already in the past. We covered Delta 191, which was the one that got hit by a microburst when it was coming into land at Dallas. Dallas? Worth. Oh. Yeah. That was Delta 191. This is American 191. Oh. <laughs> from between 1963 and 2012, there were seven fatal crashes from oh different God. airlines that were all operating as Flight 191. So... A lot of people believe Flight 191 is a cursed number and most airlines have retired it. And you, you will not, for the most part, you will probably not find a Flight 191. Supposedly, United and Spirit Airlines still fly a Flight 191. But our producer, Dennis, took a look, and he couldn't find any recent flights with that number. So it may be unofficially retired, even with them. Huh. I want to get that out of the way. Uh, we've had people ask us on social media. Uh, they've messaged us asking if we're ever going to talk about the fact, especially after we did the Delta 191, they messaged asking, are we ever going to talk about the fact that 191 is kind of a cursed <laughs> number? So there it is. Obviously, there's nothing concrete about that. It's just a weird coincidence. And airlines have retired this flight number for the most part. So you don't think it's cursed, just for the record? I don't think curses are a real thing. This is just a really weird coincidence. I believe in the facts, you know? Yeah. And you can't, you can't prove a curse definitively, but it is extremely unusual.
1: I don't think it's cursed either, but I don't know if I would want to get on a flight 191.
0: Yeah. It's not like (laughs) the plane crashed because it was 191, you know, it's just a weird coincidence, but yeah, it, it, it is something that would give you pause, but luckily you probably won't ever encounter a flight 191. Okay, anyway, with all that out of the way, specifically, we're here to talk about American Airlines Flight 191. Like I said, it was a domestic passenger flight from Chicago, Illinois to Los Angeles, California, May 25th, 1979. That's uh, Memorial Day, right? It's like the start of summer. Oh, it is. Yeah, so I assume people were, you know, maybe going out to the West Coast for some summer activities. This flight was crewed by Captain Walter Lux, who was 53 years old, had about 22,000 flight hours. First Officer James Dillard who was 49 years old with 9,275 flight hours. And the flight engineer was Alfred Udovich, who was 56 years old with 15,000 flight hours. Uh, aircraft was not that old. It was a seven-year-old McDonnell Douglas DC-10 with 19,871 hours and over 7,000 cycles. There were 258 passengers on board and 10 flight attendants uh, on the plane as well. In plane years, that sounds like like a healthy 20-year-old, right? Yeah, that's pretty young, all things considered. Yeah, that's... a uh, you don't really have to worry about too much, prime of its life, yeah. everything on the up and up. You know, we have we have covered some DC-10 incidents in the past. The DC-10 at this point did have a little bit of a checkered reputation. It had been involved in a couple of incidents and people were, especially after this flight, people became nervous about the DC-10. Just there were a number of high profile incidents with it that led people to, to worry about it. We're, gonna, we're actually going to touch on that a little later in this episode. At 2.59 p.m. Central Time, flight 191 departed from the gate at Chicago. Nothing unusual noticed during the engine start, pushback, and taxi. They were cleared to taxi into position and to hold on runway 32 right, which is a runway that actually doesn't exist anymore at O'Hare. It's a taxiway now. So this runway is gone, but at the time, it, it, it did exist. Okay. At 3.02, the flight was cleared for takeoff, and the crew acknowledged and began their rollout. As they reached V1, the crew heard a loud thump sound and saw the number one engine had failed along with the hydraulic pressure system on the left side began failing as well. And of course, V1 is the speed at which they need to take off. There's not enough runway left for them to stop. So Mm -hmm. once they reach V1, they've got to continue and they have to take off. Even if something goes wrong, they got to take off, get some altitude, figure it out. And if there is a problem, come back and land. So they did lift off about 6,000 feet down the 10,000 foot runway and they climbed out at a wings-level altitude and reached about 300 feet. But soon after reaching this altitude, they began to turn and roll to the left. The nose pitched down, and Flight 191 began to descend. As it descended, it continued to roll left until the wings were past the vertical position. Flight 191 then crashed in a field and a trailer park about 4,600 feet northwest of the departure end of runway 32 right. The aircraft exploded on impact, fire erupted, and it was totally destroyed. Uh, an old aircraft hangar, several cars, and a mobile home were destroyed as well. All 271 people on board were killed, as well as two people on the ground. And two more people on the ground sustained second and third degree burns. In total, the whole flight lasted about 50 seconds. They really were not airborne very long That's at
1: all. so short.
0: Yeah, really short. So, you know, we've talked about incidents where a plane loses an engine, and, you know, planes should be flyable if they mm-hmm. only lose one engine. You know, this is a a trijet, which we just recently talked about, actually. It should be able to fly just fine. It should be able to climb with two engines. It should be able to fly. It should be able to, you know, come back and land. That's why they have three engines. <laughs> it's like, if one goes out, plane should be able to continue to fly. So the yeah. big question is, why did this plane only get up to 300 feet and then crash?
1: Is it because, like, a plane has to swap engines and it was so,
0: it went out, like, while it was taken off? That being said, it should still be fine it should still be able to operate with the remaining two engines. You're right. I mean, there are problems introduced because they're just taking off. They don't have a lot of altitude to troubleshoot and figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. But they should still be able to climb with their remaining two engines and, you know, circle and come back for a landing. So the investigation was carried out by the NTSB, and they quickly found out that not all of the plane made it to the field in the trailer park. What? What? Yeah, the number one engine and the pylon were found near the runway on the airport property. And the pylon is the part of the plane where the engine attaches to. It's like the part that sticks out from the wing that they attach the engine onto.
1: Wait, how do they not have the whole plane?
0: You're right. In <laughs> fact, like fact, <laughs> the, the whole plane should that? be together. In fact, if you remember, I said that when they were you know going to take off and they reached V1, that they heard a thump. Well that thump that the crew heard was the sound of the number 1 engine and pylon coming off of the plane. Oh my god. So like as they're rolling down the runway getting ready to take off, the number 1 engine just falls off. Eyewitnesses say they saw the engine flip up over the left wing and land on the runway. The dance and the deformation on the pylon was consistent with those observations. And in fact, this is how engines are designed to fail. If an engine falls off, they're designed Well, in this case, specifically with the DC-10, it's designed to roll over the top of the wing and not go under the wing. That way, it has less of a chance of hitting the tail.
1: If the engine falls out, they're designed... I mean, I guess that's a good, but it's also a weird thing to plan for.
0: Right, it shouldn't happen. (laughs) But I mean, that's that's a lot of what aviation is, though, right? It's like, this shouldn't happen. But if it does, we got to make this be as safe as possible. Okay. So, like I mentioned earlier, someone managed to take a picture of Flight 191 as it was banked to the left. And in the photo, you can clearly see it's missing that engine. Like, there's no engine there. The first marks made by the engine and the pylon contacting the runway began about 19 feet right of the center line, about 6,953 feet down the runway. So like I mentioned, the engine is attached to this piece called a pylon, and the pylon is attached to the wing using spherical ball joints in three different structural elements. Mm -hmm. That's to kind of like spread it out so that, you know, the load is balanced. Two of these joints are aligned vertically in a forward bulkhead, which is attached to a structure in the wing forward of the front spar another joint is behind the forward bulkhead and that transmits thrust loads from the pylon structure into a thrust link which is in turn connected through another spherical joint to structure on the lower surface of the wing so basically what this is saying is there's a forward bulkhead and an aft bulkhead that the pylon attaches to because if you think about it not only do they have to transmit the weight of the engine pulling down but they also have to account for the thrust of the engine because it's pushing forward you know or you know that uh-huh. the thrust is coming out from behind it so it has to balance all of these forces and then the third attachment point is a spherical joint in the aft bulkhead which attaches to a clevis mounted on the underside of the wing so there's two bulkheads that stick down in the wing basically that the pylon attaches to the pylon forward bulkhead and portions of the flange from the pylon aft bulkhead either remained with the pylon or were scattered along the runway so there's talking about they're finding all these pieces uh on the runway the pylons aft clevis attach assembly and portion of the pylon aft bulkhead, wing thrust angle assembly and thrust link and forward bulkhead attach assembly remained with the wing. So those parts stayed with the plane and uh, attached to the wing and were with the rest Mm -hmm. of the wreckage. When the engine and pylon separated from the plane, a three-foot section of the left wing's leading edge, just forward of the point where the forward part of the pylon joined the wing, was torn away. And the leading edge is like the front part of the wing. So it's like a three-foot section of the front Uh part of the wing that also got torn off. So the wing's all messed up. Yeah, I mean, it's a three-foot section of the leading edge. I mean, the wing should still work, but it's just there's a chunk of it that's missing. You don't want to see it. It's not ideal, but (laughs) this wing should still provide lift. The number one and three hydraulic systems extension and retraction lines and follow-up cables for the left wing's outboard slap drive actuators were severed. It was discovered that the left wing's outboard slats were retracted, while the left-wing's inboard slats and both the right-wing's outboard and inward slats were extended to the takeoff position. And slats, you know, we talked about Actually, here recently, we did that RTX quiz, Uh which we released as supplementary content. Slats are like the part at the leading edge on the front of the wing that deploy during takeoff in order to generate more lift. So what this is saying is that on the right wing, all the slats were extended to takeoff position. On the left wing... The outermost slats were not extended, but the innermost slats were extended to take off position. I guess that makes it really imbalanced. You are exactly right, Chris. So the slats, like I said, they extend to create more lift at these lower speeds when taking off. So what this tells you is that since the slats are fully extended on the right side and not on the left side, you're generating more lift on your right than on your left. What happens when you're generating more lift on one side versus the other? You barrel roll. You start to roll, exactly. (laughs) And that's what people saw here, right? We said that the plane began rolling to the left. So already you can kind of see where this is going. Yeah. But, you know, we're going to get there. We're going we're to explain all, all the intricacies that get us there. So the, I guess the, the question then becomes, why were the outboard slats not deployed on the left wing? You know, you got, that's what we're trying to find now. Yeah. As the engine separated from the aircraft, accessories which were driven by the engine were also lost. Oh... This included pumps, which provided pressure to the aircraft's number one hydraulic system, and the AC generator, which provided electrical power to AC generator bus number one. So when the engine separates from the aircraft, the hydraulic pressure and supply lines connecting the pumps with the system are severed, which causes the hydraulic system to lose fluid, and the hydraulic pressure is not recoverable. So, you know, we have some hydraulic failure. Mm -hmm. And during the separation, the electrical wire bundles were severed between the number one AC generator and the number one AC generator bus. The flight crew might have been able to restore the number one generator and all of its services by activating the bus tie relay switch on the electrical and generator reset panel. So basically, they could have hit a button to tie it over and restore the power, but there was no evidence to indicate that the crew did this. And they weren't aware that the engine fell out. Correct. So from their perspective, the engine just stopped producing power. Like, it failed. It just wasn't giving them Mm -hmm. any, any power. So their symptoms were, you know, they get an indication that their, you know, engine one is not giving any thrust. The captain on the left side of the plane, his instruments all went out because of this uh, oh, yeah. electrical problem we're talking about. The first officer on the right side of the plane, his instruments still continued to work. So that's all they saw. They got, they had a thump, which they may have thought was turbulence or something just during the takeoff roll. Engine number one isn't giving them any thrust. They don't know that it's gone and the captain's instruments go out. Okay, so they start taking off. What point does the engine fall off exactly? How many seconds into it? Like immediately, right when they reach V1, right when they reach takeoff. Right when
1: speed. they're yeah, right when they're unable to stop taking
0: out. Yeah, let me rephrase that. They weren't at takeoff speed, they were at V1, right at which they're at the point where they need to take off. There is not enough runway for them to stop. Their engine fell off at the worst time possible. I mean, <laughs> like <laughs> Yeah, if the, if the engine had failed just a few seconds earlier, they could have potentially avoided the takeoff, but at this point they can't. They need to take off. And then it's 50 seconds after that? Yeah, and then it's 50 seconds after that, they crash. Man. So, like I said, they didn't hit the, the switch to try to restore their electrical power from the number one AC bus. Uh, and the NTSB believes the flight crew didn't try to restore the lost electrical power because of the nature of the overall emergency involving other systems, which they probably thought were more critical than their electrical problems, mm-hmm. or because they didn't have enough time to evaluate and respond to that emergency. Like you said, 50 seconds. It was quick. Well, and the plane starts rolling. Right. So, So, yeah, they're they're, they're focused on that. Yeah. The NTSB does not criticize the crew's inaction in this regard, however, since electrical power was not restored, the captain's flight director instrument, several sets of engine instruments, and most importantly, the stall warning and slat disagree warning light systems remained inoperative. So this is a huge red flag here, what I just said. Like I said, the captain's instruments went out. Some of the other things he lost included the stall warning and the light that tells him when the slats are in disagreement. So the warning that would have told him the slats were on on one wing and not on the other wasn't working and his stick shaker wasn't working.
1: So it seems, and this goes back to those redundancies, bad that the thing that controls the slats and also tells you when the
0: slats aren't being controlled properly are on the same system. They still conceivably had slat control at this point. Just the first officer would have to be the one doing it, I believe. Okay. There's a slight wrinkle here we're going to get to in a second. The real problem is, when I, like I mentioned, when the engine came off, it damaged the hydraulic system, which caused hydraulic fluid to drain, which caused the slats to not stay extended on that side. So it's not that they were disabled. It's that they lost all their hydraulic pressure. So as the air hit them, they kind of just went back into the wing. And the real, like you mentioned, the real problem was the light that would have warned the crew that this happened wasn't working because it was attached to that engine that they lost. Okay. Another question, I'm surprised you didn't ask about this, is, like I said, the stick shaker for the captain wasn't working because they lost the number one engine. The first officer's position, there was no stick shaker on his side. At the time... It was an option so the airline would have had to have paid more if they wanted a stick shaker for both people in the cockpit and they just hadn't opted to purchase both stick shakers uh-huh. as a result of this accident it became mandated that both pilots need to have stick shakers yeah it's inconceivable to me that they would only have it on the left side of the plane and not on the right side of the plane yeah that seems like I mean I guess it, how how like recent were stick shakers anyway by this point they should have been extremely standard I mean this is a long time ago but it's still 1979 yeah you know, this is still a fairly modern, you know, dual-aisle, long-range aircraft. Okay. I can't find an exact history of when stick shakers were invented, but I can see, you know, them being used as far back as 1963, which, you know, would have been 16 years before this specific flight. So, they weren't new by any stretch of the imagination. These pilots who were flying this plane should have uh, both had extensive experience with it. Uh, In fact, our producer, Dennis, looked into it, and he said that they were being developed as early as 1949, which 30 years before this flight. So they they were a technology that existed and should have been pretty prevalent by this point. Fancy water bottles, everyone on the internet reminding you to drink water, and even apps and bots reminding us to take a sip every so often. It can still be hard to remember to stay hydrated. But making hydration a priority is key to feeling healthier on a day-to-day basis. One stick of liquid IV in 16 ounces of water gives you two to three times the amount of hydration as plain water. It's super easy just to incorporate in your routine. Uh, in the morning, I'll just pop it into a big glass of water and just have it handy. It just becomes like second nature. It's just like another part of my morning routine. Liquid IV contains five essential vitamins with more vitamin C than an orange and as much potassium as a banana. It's also healthier than sugary sports drinks, no artificial flavors or preservatives, and less sugar than an apple. Liquid IV has also donated over 10 million servings globally and is donating 4 million servings in response to COVID-19 to hospitals, first responders, food banks, veterans, and active military. So grab your Liquid IV in bulk nationwide at Costco, or you can get 25% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code BLACKBOXDOWN at checkout. That's 25% off anything you order when you get better hydration today using the promo code BLACKBOXDOWN at liquidiv.com moving is the worst you've already spent tons of money and time and effort the last thing you need is to realize you can't bring the couch you love just because it's too difficult to move only to have to buy a new one well with burrow that's a predicament of the past burrow's innovative modular design means you can take the couch you love with you wherever you go they're super helpful instructions to make assembling and disassembling your furniture quick and hassle free. You can finally let yourself fall in love with your furniture because you can take it with you to your next place and the next one and the next one. Uh, there's thousands of ways to customize your couch to suit your exact needs and they're durable, stain scratch resistant so they can suit your exact lifestyle too. Their award-winning Nomad sofa even has a built-in USB charger for all day power. I've used Burrow before and I mean, they're not lying. It is super easy to put their couches together and having that USB charger is super handy. Just keep a cord down there. Uh, if your phone or whatever electronic device you have is running low, just pop up the power cord. It's, uh, it's amazing. It's really, really cool to have it so handy. Uh, and right now you can get $75 off your first order at burrow.com slash blackboxdown. That's burrow, which is B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash blackboxdown for $75 off your burrow purchase. Burrow.com slash blackboxdown. Now there's a barmaid there, good-looking young lady. She's serving me a drink. Hey, what would you like? I usually my drink was give me a Kettle One Martini, three olives, a glass of water on the side. I finish the drink. The guys come in. I'm gonna go, go in my pocket, take out the big wad of money. Bam! I give her a hundred dollars. If you're with the mob, I say, hey Jordan, you're on record with us. That means we protect you. Nobody could shake you down. We could shake you down, but you're on record with us. For more
1: on how Jack became so trusted in the highest levels of the Gambino organization, check out
0: episode 392 of the Jordan Harbinger Show. Okay, so like I was saying a little while ago, when the engine and the pylon separated, the hydraulic fluid that was trapped in the actuating cylinder and the operating lines of the left-wing outboard slats was released. And the force of the air moving over the slats caused them to retract, which caused a slat disagreement that wasn't noticed because the warning light was inoperative due to electrical loss. This is also why only the outboard slats were retracted and not the inboard slats Mm. because the inboard slats were on the fuselage side of the engine. So they kept hydraulic fluid. There was a tear and then everything after the engine, which is the outboard slats, are what got retracted. Okay. When the engine was lost, the crew began going through the appropriate emergency checklist and one of the items instructed what the speed should be. It said, climb out at V2 until reaching 800 AGL, which is above ground level, or obstacle clearance altitude, whichever is higher then lower the nose and accelerate. So basically, it just told, maintain your takeoff speed until you reach 800 feet above ground level or you clear all the obstacles. Mm -hmm. Then you can lower the nose and accelerate. So in this specific case, their V2 speed was about 153 knots.
1: V2, I know what V1 is. That's when
0: you can't take off or you have to take off. V2 is, what is that again? So like you said, V1 is the speed at which the plane needs to take off on the runway. V2 is the minimum speed that needs to be maintained up to acceleration altitude. So... It's like their minimum speed that they need to continue up till they get to altitude. Okay. It's kind of like a speed limit, but your lower speed limit. Yeah, yeah. Don't go too slower than this. Right. So like I said, their V2 speed was listed at 153 knots, which is about 176 miles an hour. However, the stall speed for the left wing was 159 knots, which is 183 miles an hour. The reason that this stall speed was so high was because the slats had gone in. It was because of that slat disagreement. So they were following their procedure to stay at their V2 speed, but their V2 speed was too low, which caused only the left wing to stall, uh, which caused the bank. The crew was unaware of the approaching stall because the captain's stick shaker was inoperable Mm -hmm. due to the electrical loss. So they were in a position where they were following the all the guidelines and the checklist as they should, but they didn't realize that their slats weren't deployed. So the left half of the plane stalled and they didn't know that because the stick shaker wasn't working. And that's why the plane began banking and rolling to the left. And they stalled. Mm. Yeah, that sucks. So it's like, yeah, yeah, I mean, they did what they were supposed to do, but the left wing stalled. There's no way they can look back and see. They don't know. You can't From the cockpit, you can't see the engines or look back and see the wings.
1: Is there any other indication that a plane is stalling other than the shaker?
0: You'd have your stick shaker. Sometimes you have a stick pusher, which forces the nose down. That's really about it, you know. I think it's up to the pilots to keep an eye on their airspeed and their altitude and try to figure it out. And when you get an unexpected stall, especially at this low of an altitude, there's no time to react. There's no time to correct it. You can't trade altitude for speed, which is what you would normally try to do, because you have no altitude. Yeah, they're so close to the ground. Right. Now, I guess, you know, we've kind of outlined what led to all of this, you know, in the flight itself. So, I mean, the big question that remains is, why did the engine fall off? Obviously, that shouldn't happen. The NTSB discovered that the reason that the engine, the pylon separated from the aircraft was due to damage that occurred during maintenance at the American Airlines facility in Tulsa on March 29th and 30th of 1979. So, just a you know, two months, less than two months before this accident. During the maintenance, the engine and pylon had been removed for inspection. McDonnell Douglas's removal procedure recommends that the engine be detached from the pylon, and then the pylon can be removed from the wing. However, it was discovered that a few airlines were removing the engine and the pylon altogether as one unit. This was done in order to save time, and for American Airlines, they would support the engine and pylon assembly with a large forklift as it was being removed and reattached. If the forklift was incorrectly positioned, the engine pylon assembly would not be stable as it was being handled, causing it to rock like a seesaw and jam the pylon against the wing's attachment points. Forklift operators were guided only by hand and voice signals since they couldn't directly see the junction between the pylon and the wing. So, you know, they're operating the forklift and there's another guy who's telling them, you know, left, right, up, down. So they're mm-hmm. you know, that's how they're having to, you know, reattach it. Positioning had to be extremely accurate or structural damage could result. The mechanic started to disconnect the engine and pylon as a single unit, but a shift change took place halfway through the job. And during this time, the forklift remained stationary, but the fork supporting the entire weight of the engine and pylon moved downwards slightly due to a you know, loss of hydraulic pressure associated with the forklift engine being off. Uh huh. And this caused a misalignment between the engine pylon uh, and the wing. When they resumed work after the shift change, the pylon was jammed on the wing and the forklift had to be repositioned. Whether damage to the mount was caused by the initial downward movement of the engine pylon structure or by the realignment attempt is unclear. All that matters is this is probably what caused the specific damage that led to this failure. Yeah. So
1: they were halfway done taking it off the plane and then it's like, oh, let's go to a launch and then just
0: left it. Yeah. And they turned the forklift off. And as it was off, you know, yeah. there's hydraulic pressure leaks out. So it, and and it, and it, yeah, it kind of drooped down and the weight of the engine pylon kind of you know, it, was, it wasn't it was fully attached. It starts, you know, kind of nosing down a bit, which is bending all of the structures that are holding it because it's only being partially held up. Yeah. And then they got back and they're like, did they realize? Well, yeah, they realized it because at this point it was jammed. They couldn't take it off. So they had to move the forklift around to like try to shimmy the engine to be able to take it off. Oh, man. I mean, yeah, it's it's it sucks because the reason that they were doing this was the proper procedure, like I said, was to remove the engine first from the pylon, and then once the engine's off, then you remove the pylon. The reason they were doing it this way is because the pylons attached to the engine with a couple hundred bolts. So they'd have to go through and remove every single bolt. The pylons attached to the wing with only three. So they were doing it this way to just try to save a bunch of time. They estimated they saved 200 man hours doing it this way.
1: Wait, 200 man hours like per plane?
0: Yeah, per engine removal. Wow. So, I mean, obviously that's why they were doing it this way. They thought, oh, We can save a bunch of time doing it this way instead, but you're not supposed to do it this way because you end up damaging the mount points. Mm -hmm. And of course, the damage from this developed into fatigue cracking that got worse during each takeoff and landing cycle over the next several weeks. And when the attachment finally failed, the engine in the pylon broke away from the wing. The field service representative from McDonnell Douglas stated that the company would not encourage this procedure due to the element of risk and had so advised American Airlines. Okay, so so did they when they were putting the engine back on, did they do anything whenever
1: they were like, oh, oh, we messed this up, did they report it or did they just like stick it back on or
0: what? They just stuck it back on. As far as they were concerned, they did the job. That was it. They didn't realize that they had damaged the plane by letting it bend like that? They may have done like a visual inspection and not seen anything because, you know, the cracking we're talking about is microscopic cracking inside these joints that just over the time expands you know we talked about like in Japan Airlines one two three which was one of our early episodes how you know with all these pressures changing these microscopic cracks can grow over time and that's what happened here this is something they couldn't see. I think from their perspective if they had looked they would have seen a slight bend in the metal where uh, in the I believe it was in the aft bulkhead mm-hmm. where the engine attaches but that's it. It, it, it honestly I've seen the photos of it. Uh, I'll see if I can find one to post uh, in our social media. it doesn't look like a very big bend. This is after the plane crashed or? After the plane crashed. Yeah, okay. they, they were able to see it.
1: I'm just trying to like put doing a lot of like DIY home improvement stuff. I mean, like if you were like mounting something, you know, say you were mounting a TV and then you like installed half the, say it had four bolts and you installed half of it and then left it there and went and got like food, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then like came back a couple hours later and put it in the other ones. And then it's like at some point the TV just falls off. Yeah. Because it's like, the, it, yeah.
0: Obviously way worse. Oh, yeah, way worse. Yeah, I mean, it's terrible. And I think, you know, American Airlines was doing this and, you know, obviously they had this crash. They weren't the only airline doing this. Uh, several other airlines were also doing it this way. I believe Continental and United were both doing it. But I think, if I remember right, United was using a crane to support the engine instead of a forklift. Okay. And were they taking breaks in between it? I mean, that's just... They can't help it, right? Like, if there's a shift change, there's a shift change. You gotta, you're only allowed to work so much, someone else has to come in and finish the job. Mm. That's just, you know, par for the course. But like I said, McDonnell Douglas said that they had advised American Airlines not to do this, but McDonnell Douglas also said it doesn't have the authority to approve or disapprove the maintenance procedures of its customers. So, yeah. all they said was don't do it, but they have no real way to enforce that. So, there's some findings here. The engine and the pylon assembly separated either at or immediately after liftoff. Like you said, the worst possible time. Mm -hmm. The flight crew was committed to continue takeoff. The aft end of the pylon assembly began to separate in the forward flange of the aft bulkhead. If I can find the photo I saw before of this, I'll post it. And it, it kind of shows you exactly where this is. You'll see the bend and you'll see where the cracks are. The structural separation of the pylon was caused by a complete failure of the forward flange of the aft bulkhead after its residual strength had been critically reduced by the fracture and subsequent service life. The overload fracture and fatigue cracking on the pylon aft bulkhead's upper flange were the only pre-existing damage on the bulkhead. The length of the overload fracture and fatigue cracking was about 13 inches. The fracture was caused by an upward movement of the aft end of the pylon, which brought the upper flange and its fasteners in contact with the wing clevis. All electrical power to the number one AC generator bus and number one DC bus was lost after the pylon separated. The captain's flight director instrument and stall warning system and the slat disagreement warning light systems were rendered inoperative. Power to these buses was never restored. The hydraulic lines and follow-up cables of the drive actuator in the left wing's outboard leading edge slat were severed by the separation of the pylon and the left wing's outboard slats retracted during climb out. The retraction of the slats caused an asymmetric stall and subsequent loss of control of the aircraft. The flight crew could not see the wings and engines from the cockpit. Because of the loss of SLAT disagreement light and the stall warning system, the flight crew would not have received an electronic warning of either the SLAT asymmetry or the stall. The loss of the warning systems created a situation which afforded the flight crew an inadequate opportunity to recognize and prevent the ensuing stall of the aircraft. I mean, we, that's all what we covered before. They, yeah. they couldn't see the wing. And with the warnings disabled, they didn't know that they were entering this asymmetric stall. Yeah. The flight crew of the aircraft, in accordance with the prescribed emergency procedure, which called for a climb out to be flown at V-2 speed. V-2 speed was six knots below the stall speed for the left wing. The deceleration to V-2 speed caused the aircraft to stall. The start of the left roll was the only warning the pilot had of the onset of the stall. American Airlines engineering personnel developed an engineering change order to remove and reinstall the pylon and engine as a single unit. The engineering change order directed that the combined engine and pylon assembly be supported, lowered, and raised by a forklift. American Airlines engineering personnel did not perform an adequate evaluation of either the capability of the forklift to provide the required precision of the task or the degree of difficulty involved in placing the lift properly or the consequences of placing the lift improperly. The engineering change order did not emphasize the precision required to place the forklift properly. So again, they're really drilling into this that, they came up with this new procedure but didn't consider the consequences. I uh, I saw an interview with uh, someone who worked in maintenance who was talking about this specific incident. And they were talking about how the most skilled forklift operator with this kinds of forklift they were using, the minimum movement that the forklift would do was a quarter inch. So like even uh-huh. if you barely touch the controls, everything would move at least a quarter inch. But the precision required was like on the order of hundredths of an inch. So oh. that's, you know, the forklift doesn't have the precision to line it up and get it in there without causing damage inadvertently. And on top of that, like I said, the forklift operator couldn't see the mounting, so he's relying on someone else to tell him. You know, and so there's a delay. Someone tells you, you know, stop. It takes you know, a fraction of a second to actually stop. Yeah. The last finding here. The FAA does not approve the carrier's maintenance procedures, and a carrier has the right to change its maintenance procedure without FAA approval. So that's why they made this change without telling anyone. They didn't, they didn't need to. The NTSB determines that the probable cause of this accident was the asymmetrical stall and the ensuing roll of the aircraft because of uncommanded retraction of the left-wing outboard leading-edge slats and the loss of stall warning and slat disagreement indication systems, resulting from maintenance-induced damage leading to the separation of the number one engine and pylon assembly at a critical point during takeoff. Like you said, the worst possible time. Yeah. The separation resulted from damage by improper maintenance procedures, which led to the failure of the pylon structure. Contributing to the cause of the accident were the vulnerability of the design of the pylon attached points to maintenance damage, the vulnerability of the design of the leading edge slat system to damage which produced asymmetry, deficiencies in the Federal Aviation Administration's surveillance and reporting systems, which failed to detect and prevent the use of improper maintenance procedures, deficiencies in the practices and communications among the operators, the manufacturer, and the FAA, which failed to determine and disseminate the particulars regarding previous maintenance damage incidents and the intolerance of prescribed operational procedures to this unique emergency. Plenty of blame to go around from the NTSB <laughs> on this one. It's like, you, everyone everyone has a hand in fault here. So, of course, they uh, released a few recommendations. Did they have one particular uh, fault that they placed it more on? Well, I think most of the fault lied on American Airlines maintenance for developing like this it. procedure. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, implementing this procedure. In fact, I mean, it was... If you think about it, right, like we talk about all of this stuff and this maintenance procedure. These are people, right, who are doing this. Like, these are people just trying to do their jobs. And it could be this maintenance people get told, okay, this is, now this is the way you're going to do it. And they're like, all right, you know, this, I'm, I'm just doing my job the way I'm being told to do it and, and without realizing that it's not the right way to be doing it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And in fact, one of the American Airlines mechanics who had performed this maintenance procedure on the aircraft committed suicide oh, no. the night before he was supposed to be deposed by McDonnell Douglas in one of oh. the ensuing lawsuits. So yeah, I mean it, this it was probably just some maintenance worker who was doing what he was told to do. They were just following their man, it's hard to figure out who specifically to be mad at, right? I mean, I guess you got to find the person who developed this specific procedure.
1: Yeah. And then I wonder if they knew that they had messed up whenever they left it and it was bent and they didn't
0: say anything. Right. Yeah, I don't know. There's no documentation of that.
1: What could have, what's
0: the you said they were going to be deposed? Like, what's the worst that could have happened to them? The worst possible. I mean, we've talked about this in some of the other incidents. I don't know specifically what he was being deposed for. But, I mean, you could get, like, involuntary manslaughter. Yeah. You could get many charges of that since there were a couple hundred people who passed away. I don't think they would have. At least the maintenance workers. But
1: I don't know. That's just speculation.
0: So it looks like he was going to be deposed in a lawsuit between American Airlines and McDonnell Douglas. Uh, They were suing each other over the crash. And uh, he was a a crew chief. Suing each other, huh? Yeah. So he was a crew chief for the uh, maintenance personnel at the Tulsa facility. Apparently, he didn't work directly on this plane, but he did work at the facility where it was um, maintained. And he was going to be deposed as part of that lawsuit. So the NTSB, of course, uh, issues some recommendations. They issue uh, an airworthiness directive to require an immediate inspection of all DC-10 aircraft in which engine pylon assembly has been removed and reinstalled for damage to the wing-mounted pylon aft bulkhead, including its forward flange and the attachy spar web fasteners, require removal of any sealant which may hide a crack in the flange area, and employ eddy current or other approved techniques to ensure detection of such damage. So basically, they were going to look at every DC-10 that had this procedure done on it and make sure there was not similar damage. Yeah. And in fact, I think they did find some, uh, some other planes that had uh, similar damage as well. So this was a, a really good thing that they did this immediately. They also issued a maintenance alert bulletin directing the FAA maintenance inspectors to contact their assigned carriers and advise them to immediately discontinue the practice of lowering and raising the pylon with the engine still attached. Carriers should adhere to the procedure recommended by the Douglas Aircraft Company service bulletin, which includes removing the engine from the pylon before removing the pylon from the wing. Ensure that the design of the transport category aircraft provides positive protection against asymmetry of lift devices during critical phases of flights, or if certification is based upon demonstrated controllability of the aircraft under condition of asymmetry, ensure that asymmetric warning systems, stall warning systems, or other critical systems needed to provide the pilot with information essential to safe flight are completely redundant. So this is what you were talking about earlier. These systems were all powered off of one electrical system. Why wasn't there any redundancy? Uh, so, you know, one of the recommendations is that there should be redundancy. For yeah, you, did, you nailed it, Chris. You've, been, you've actually kind of been a step ahead every every uh, <laughs> on everything in this episode. I feel like you've learned a lot in our previous fifty episodes. <laughs> it only took fifty. There's a lot to learn. And then the last recommendation: evaluate the takeoff climb airspeed schedules prescribed for an engine failure to determine whether continued climb at speeds attained in excess of V2 up to V2 plus ten knots is an acceptable means of increasing stall margin. Without significantly degrading obstacle clearance. So, reevaluate the checklist, see if maybe they can recommend they go a little faster during this part of the, the checklist. With an engine stall or just in general? If you lose uh, an engine, engine failure. Okay. Like I alluded to earlier at the beginning of this episode, the crash of American Airlines 191 brought strong criticism from the media regarding the DC 10 safety and design. The DC 10 had been involved in two accidents related to the design of its cargo doors and the separation of engine one from its mount. The widespread publication of the dramatic images of the airplane missing its engine seconds before crash and a second photo of the fireball resulting from the impact raised widespread concerns about the safety of the DC-10. The faulty procedure was banned and the aircraft type went on to have a long career as a passenger and cargo aircraft. In response to this accident, American Airlines was fined $500,000 by the U.S. government for improper maintenance procedures, which is equivalent to $1.3 million in 2019. I think that's a lot. It seems like a lot, but for, who knows, for an airline, that might be a drop in the bucket, right? Their planes cost way more than that. On June 6, 1979, two weeks after the crash, the FAA suspended the type certificate for the DC-10, thereby grounding all DC-10s under its jurisdiction. It also enacted a special air regulation banning the DC-10 from U.S. airspace, which prevented foreign DC-10s not under the jurisdiction of the FAA from flying within the country. So they they shut the the DC-10 down. They're like, wow, no U.S. carrier can fly it and no foreign carrier can fly it into the U.S. And they did this, of course, out of an abundance of caution uh, while they were investigating whether the engine mounting and pylon design met relevant requirements. And once, you know, the FAA was satisfied, maintenance issues were primarily at fault and not the actual design of the aircraft, the type certificate was restored on July 13th and the special air regulation was repealed. So they grounded it for, what, like five weeks or so. Yeah. Which, again makes the public wary of that plane like why mm-hmm. <laughs> what's wrong with that <laughs> plane like it can't fly in the US you know maybe we shouldn't be booking this so this is a bit of a tangent and we might have talked about this before as far as like overall
1: safety and 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 like the best standard what country or or organization has like the most strict safety guidelines would it be FAA or
0: I would say most countries adhere to the same level of standards uh-huh the United States the EU are all going to be, you know, more or less the same and all, all pretty safe. Instead of thinking about which one's the safest, I normally worry which ones are not safe. Uh. <laughs> uh, that's the way okay. I normally think yeah, about yeah, yeah. it. And, you know, we've covered numerous incidents in Indonesia. I think there's a lot of, even to this day, there's some deficiencies in the Indonesian uh, aviation industry. And some of that's a side effect of the fact that the country's so mountainous. Some of it is just over a year expansion. There's a, lot mm-hmm. of, there's a lot of incidents specific to them. But in fact, here, actually, we recently here living in Austin, we were impacted by a country that started having some aviation problems. I don't know if you read the headlines about this. Mexico got in trouble for their uh, safety record. And they're kind of on probation right now in the United States where they cannot add new flights to the United States until they bring their safety back up. Oh, wow. There were supposed to be new nonstop flights from Austin to Mexico that were supposed to have started last month. But before those flights could start, the FAA got... You know, got a little mad at Mexico, so now those flights never actually launched for us. Well, that's good, I guess, but also I like direct flights. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, it would be it would be good. Yeah, they uh, they downgraded them back in May. Uh, I just had to look it up uh, back on May 25th. So there's there's actually different categories when countries adhere to these international standards, and most countries are what they call Category 1. It's like, you adhere to all the standards, you're super safe, nothing to worry about. They demoted Mexico to Category 2. <laughs> it, which sounds like it's not that bad, but cat, it's either Category 1 or Category 2. Category 2 is the lowest level. There's no three. There's no three. Three's, okay. Three is you shouldn't be flying. <laughs> so yeah, so they got downgraded to uh, to Category 2 back in May. So after this incident, for 32 years, there was actually no permanent memorial. Funding was obtained for memorial in 2009, uh, ...through a two-year effort by the sixth grade class of Decatur Classical School in Chicago. The memorial, which is a two-foot-high concave wall with interlocking bricks displaying the names of the crash victims... ...was formally dedicated in a ceremony on October 15, 2011. The memorial is located on the south shore of Lake Opeka at Lake Park... ...in the northwest corner of Lee and Tuhi Avenues, two miles east of the crash site. A remembrance ceremony was held at the memorial on May 25, 2019, which was the 40th anniversary of the accident... You got to think about it. that's kind of crazy that there was no memorial erected for this. And it took a class of sixth graders uh, to raise the money to put a memorial together. That's so weird. Yeah, it's, it doesn't make any sense to me. You know, normally, we always talk about where the memorials are for these incidents. Like This one took a long time and it took sixth graders to, to make it happen. And there's one other little bit of trivia I wanted to mention about this okay. flight. This particular flight had the ability in the cabin, the passengers could watch the takeoff from a video camera. There was a video camera mounted in the cockpit showing like the pilot's view of what was happening. And it was like through closed circuit television, it was broadcast into the cabin of the plane, into the displays that were in the plane so that passengers could watch it. And it was on when they were taking off. So the passengers in the flight as they were crashing could most likely see what was happening. Oh. Yeah, this was a feature that they abandoned, that American Airlines (laughs) abandoned abandoned after this accident. (laughs) But it's, it's kind of unfortunate. I have actually been on flights that have external cameras. I think I have too. Yeah, you can watch flights. It's it's, it's something that's coming back. It's kind of cool. Yeah, it's cool. I like it. I, I, w- I was on a flight in, uh, on A once, and they had a camera mounted in the vertical stabilizer. So you could like see the whole plane and see everything like around it as you were flying. I thought it was neat. Yeah. But yeah, I can understand why they would want to uh, discontinue this feature after this accident. I can't imagine how terrible that would have been. For them to see, you know, to see exactly mm-hmm. what, what's going on in front of the plane. But that's it. That's American Airlines 191, one of the uh, cursed flight numbers, uh, if you believe in curses. Which we don't. Which we don't. But it's a terrible—regardless, it's a terrible accident that was entirely preventable, uh, as most of these are. But, you know, I feel like a lot was learned uh, from this one. And hope and things are safer now because of it. Yeah. Specifically, you know, now there's stick shakers for mandated for both the uh, captain and the first officer— It got more redundancies in the alert system so that, you know, they'd be more aware if something like this happened again. In fact, actually, a little side note, again, that's something that's popped into mind. When they were investigating this incident, if, you know, and they they went through flight simulators, if they told the pilots and they allowed the the warnings to illuminate showing that there was a SLAT disagreement the pilots were able to recover the plane every time. Uh. But if they disabled the slat disagreement light and the stick shaker, the pilots could never recovered it in simulation.
1: Yeah, that stinks.
0: Yeah, so this was totally recoverable. They should have been able to come back around and land, but because their warnings were disabled because of the loss of that electrical bus, they ended up crashing. All right, well, that's it for this episode. Uh, We'll be back again next week with another episode of Black Box Down. And we have new merch. Oh, yeah, we do have new merch. We got shirts, we got a mug, we got a bumper sticker... We got lots of cool stuff. You can check it out at store.roosterteeth.com. Just do a search for "black box down."
1: Hello, uh, we're back. It's me and Gus, uh, and I want to tell you about a new show. Uh, we do we, obviously we do uh, podcasts at Rooster Teeth, but one of the things we also do is we do a lot of like uh, big uh, productions and and like shows. And uh, one that I've been working on uh, uh, the last. Several months, a show called Camp Betrayal. Um, it's kind of like if you took Survivor and combined it with uh, the video game Among Us or the board game Werewolves, and then made it take place uh, in a horror movie. Uh, it's like horror-themed Survivor competition, and it's uh, it's available at roosterteeth.com, and you can watch the first episode for free. And if you like it, you can keep watching it. There's a free trial, and uh, it helps support us. And then also. Uh, you could check out some of the Black Box Down um, first original content that we have only for roosterteeth.com,
0: like our uh, Crash, like Crash Simulator. Simulator. Yeah, yeah, everyone should go check out Camp Betrayal and check out our Crash Simulator videos. And Chris has been working so hard, I feel so bad for him. <laughs> <laughs> These past couple of months working on this, I think the show turned out great. Everyone should go watch it and uh, support our friend Chris. And you can find a link for all that in our Linktree. Linktree!